Taking Stock on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour or so. We've got some more great guests with us today talking about business and politics here in Ireland and around the world. And coming up on today's show, this week's indictment of Donald Trump. We're going to discuss new research that discloses an alarming trend, which is growing acceptance that violence as a means to achieve political objectives is okay and growing in the US. Kira Lerner of The Guardian joins me to examine the implications and ramifications of this concerting new phenomenon. And we're going to delve into the realm of energy solutions as the government places its bet on hydrogen and yet another holy grail emerges for our national energy woes. But the pivotal question remains, are the recently unveiled plans sufficient to satisfy demands of the industry? We're going to talk to a leading expert about that. And in the political arena, the debates surrounding rail and road options have caused a lot of discussion and many tensions within government, leaving both policymakers and the public in a state of confusion. We're going to get the insights of Professor Edgar Morganrath from DCU Business School and he's going to shed some light on the intricacies of this contentious policy matter. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first today, let's start with that issue of hydrogen. Last month, the government released its national hydrogen strategy and it seeks to set out a strategic vision for the role that hydrogen can play in Ireland's energy system. But there's very little green energy. There's very little understanding of hydrogen and what it can do. So to help us try and unpick what the strategy says and what the potential for hydrogen in Ireland is, I'm delighted to be joined now by Hannah Daly, who's Professor in Sustainable Energy and Energy Systems Modelling at University College Cork. Hannah, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mandy. Now, I'm going to get into explaining blue and green hydrogen, but before we even delve down into that, can you just explain to us in a very general sense how hydrogen is extracted and how it's utilised? Yes, so I suppose hydrogen, first of all, it's just an element. It's the most common element in the universe. But when we're talking about hydrogen as a fuel in the energy system, we're talking about specifically uh, something that is an energy carrier. So as in its most basic form, it's a gas, H2. It's just two hydrogen molecules stuck together. It's very, very tiny, tiny gas. And if you have that gas, it, you can burn it. Um, and any kind of source of heat like that can act as a fuel that potentially could replace fossil fuels or electricity and so on. So there's a, li- there's a little bit of kind of misconception about what hydrogen is. And, and sometimes it's, it's um, kind of put forward as a source of energy. You know, in the same way fossil fuels are a source of energy or the wind energy. Um, but we really have to be clear that hydrogen is just a vector it, or hydrogen as a fuel. It's just a fuel. It's an energy carrier in the same way that electricity is. So, um, you know, electricity is made from either fossil fuels like coal or gas or from renewables like uh, like wind or solar. Um, and so it can be, you know, simply put dirty or clean, it can be high carbon or low carbon. And in the same way, um, hydrogen uh, as a potential fuel um, could be made for natural gas. And that's the way currently 98% of hydrogen globally is made from natural gas. Um, Or it can be um, made from um, renewable 
energy as well. So we can use electricity, for example, to split uh, water molecules, H2O. Uh, we can kind of split out the, the oxygen um, from, from a water molecule uh, and, and isolate that hydrogen gas. So you take energy in and then you, you, have, you have this hydrogen molecule ready to, to use in the energy system. So depending on how it's actually produced, that's what makes the distinction between blue and green hydrogen. Can you talk us through how they are different? Yeah, there's a whole rainbow of of colors and new new <laughs> colors come all the time. Now, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm not even I don't think I'm even up to date. I think there's even pink hydrogen. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so I suppose the basics uh, that, that that we that we care about in Ireland um, are the, the main one that you'll hear about is green hydrogen, and that is hydrogen that's produced with electrolysis that I just described, which is using renewable electricity to split water molecules uh, and, and to create a hydrogen gas. So that is that is one option. The the main way that hydrogen is produced right now is by taking a hydrocarbon. So fossil fuels are hydrocarbons. And the carbon atom is stripped out, um, and uh, which releases CO two, which is a bad thing, um, obviously. And 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 the hydrogen remains, and that is grey or brown hydrogen or even black hydrogen, depending on um, what what type of, um, uh, of fossil fuel that comes from. Now you mentioned blue hydrogen, and that is um, put forward by a lot of, of uh, proponents of, of of natural gas. Uh, that would be where you use you, you capture that carbon that, that arises from um, from that process of making hydrogen using natural gas and you store that carbon molecule and put it underground that's not really a, a viable solution potentially at all because of because of the expense and and the the kind of uncertainty of storing the carbon um, um, but certainly not for Ireland because we're not a, a fossil fuel producer mm. so um just in terms of how advanced the government's plans are or where we sit in a sort of global uh, food chain, if you like, when it comes to this, are we way behind the curve here? What are what are the government kind of advancing for us to do? I know there's always this talk about us becoming the Saudi Arabia of wind. But when it comes to hydrogen, where are we where are we at now? Um, well, we're, we're not very advanced um, and a lot of countries are, are not advanced at all. But I, I suppose before we, we do advance any kind of strategy in, in getting into hydrogen, I suppose I would, I, th- I think we need to take a step back and see what is the actual value of hydrogen. And you mentioned this kind of phrase that Ireland can be this Saudi Arabia of wind energy. And there's this idea that we can use all that vast offshore wind energy resource, which we have and is a fantastic asset for Ireland and convert that into hydrogen and somehow export it in the same way that Saudi Arabia, you know, exported lots of oil. But there's, I mean, I think we have to really think very carefully about um, how viable that is, um, whether there will be a global trade in hydrogen fuels in the first place, because as we phase out fossil fuels, and we need to do that very urgently, um, to meet our our carbon budgets, um, we uh, it, it's increasingly looking like that direct electrification is the best um, way to remove fossil fuels. So what that means is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were looking at a, a direct competition between electric vehicles and and fuel cell vehicles, uh, so cars that would run on electricity as we have now or ones that run on hydrogen. And hands down, electric vehicles have won that race um, for any, any application up until kind of a light truck. 
still potentially will will, will use hydrogen for for kind of long range, very heavy shipping. But but um but but, but that's still to be determined whether electricity will win out there. Um and and there's there's a whole host of other applications that that hydrogen could be used for. Um, but I think we haven't yet developed a very clear idea of whether Ireland actually would be competitive if there was a global trade in hydrogen fuels. Um, it's it's unlikely that we would ever be competitive on cost with countries who can build loads of solar, um, you know, in desert regions. That's a huge, huge resource with, with kind of with high capacity factors. So that's one thing to take into account. And the second thing to take into account is is uh, is is we're certainly not going to use hydrogen um, as a source of heat in our buildings um, because it's it's very expensive. Yeah, and and that's another. Um, interesting point when you're talking about hydrogen. I mean, you know, it's not a fuel, as you say, it's a vector for mm-hmm. fuel. So it's important to understand its limitations. But um, just when you're examining the use of, of of hydrogen in Ireland, I saw that gas networks want to try and use it for the um, gas pipelines. Others think that it should be um, reserved for um, transport and and heavy industry. Where where do you think that the the right approach, or what are the government proposing in terms yeah. of using it? Well, the, the hydrogen strategy is very good in that it it, it clearly says that any um, kind of end use sector that can be electrified should certainly be electrified. So mm. that's why they've ruled out using hydrogen for heating and in a lot of transport applications for the reasons I, I, I laid out. Ireland also doesn't have heavy industry like we'll say Germany would. Um, we, we don't already use hydrogen to make fertilizer. So that would be an obvious kind of use case for, for green hydrogen to, to replace kind of dirty hydrogen. Um, so one of the potential areas, the kind of strongest, um, the strongest, I suppose, certainty or, or the um, the potential that we might have uh, to use hydrogen is as a way to store energy, um, to to store excess energy from wind and solar, and then to use it at times of these Dunkelflaute events. So these these area these times in the winter uh, when there's not much wind uh, and that we need we certainly need some form of long-term energy storage to replace fossil fuels that we use now um, for that purpose so so i suppose that like the question is whether hydrogen is the right vector for that um, we could also see breakthroughs in long-term battery uh, solutions or in district heating, which can then soak up that excess, um, uh, you know, renewable energy as well. And I think that the the hydrogen strategy is very good about setting out the kind of priority use cases for hydrogen. Mm. I still think there's a lot of optimism that that there is a significant opportunity that Ireland can export hydrogen. I don't see that the case has yet been made um, to, to 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 kind of to make it worth putting a lot of investment, a lot of research time, um, a lot of kind of attention towards this, which we're not certain about. We know that we have to get on with decarbonizing our own energy system before we start exporting energy to other other countries, if you know what I mean. Otherwise, it'll it'll push up our emissions. um. I'm going to talk to you about that export possibility in a moment, but I want to just stick with the storage piece that you mentioned there, because as I understand it, um, and, and I could be completely wrong about this, but when we talk about energy like wind energy, we're, we're talking about a, an energy that is not dispatchable or stored, you know, you can't keep it and store it. How does hydrogen help that? Yeah, exactly. So that, that's, I mean, that, that is the function of fossil fuels at the moment. They're not just a source of energy that, that you can store them for a long period of time. And, and they're, you know, we, all, we have tanks of oil or we have, have gas in the pipeline and, and you just 
can't turn on the wind or, or sun. Um, so even though wind and solar energy have become very cheap, we have to, the next kind of frontier of innovation in the energy system is to find a way to store that cheaply and reliably. And hydrogen has been uh, has been sort of promoted as this idea that you you use electrolysis to make hydrogen at, at times when there's lots of wind and sun, um, and then you burn that hydrogen in conventional gas plants, basically at times of, of low renewables, um, to you know as uh, as a way to balance the, the the renewable energy, and that that certainly has a lot of potential. Um, now there may be other uh, kind of disruptive technologies down the line. For example, there's these ba- these iron air air batteries that can store energy for 100 hours um, that, that, that potentially will be disruptive there um, or additional interconnection to the continent. So where we, we link our electricity grid to, um, to the continental Europe and then have access to, to a wider kind of mix of, of electricity. Those are potentially competing with that idea of, of hydrogen being a vector. Yeah. And is there a big part of the hydrogen strategy that advocates hydrogen for storage? Yes, I think um, I think we're we're due to see the uh, a long term energy storage strategy soon, and that should add some clarity about you know what what is the um, the kind of preferred option there. I mean, the state will in some ways take a technology neutral approach and mm. and just try to allow the market to, to determine, and, that, and that's yeah, and that's of course that's of course a, like a, a good approach. But it's also you know the question really is uh, it's the elephant in the room really is what do we do with our natural gas infrastructure. And you mentioned earlier on the Gas Networks Ireland, um, you know, in its 2019 long-term strategy to be net zero, had this idea that we would inject hydrogen into the natural gas grid to replace natural gas and blend that with maybe biogas, which comes from, you know, farming, um, and then have some carbon capture and storage, and that would be net zero. But the hydrogen strategy is very clear that we won't be, you know, hydrogen is, is just too expensive and too risky, and it's it's very technically difficult molecule to manage. Yeah, so- it won't really go into our gas grid. So that, that leaves the question, are we going, I think we need to phase out the gas grid. Somebody needs to sort of grab the bull by the horns and say, you know, we need a planned phase down of, of the gas infrastructure. Yeah, maybe too advanced for, for that just at this juncture. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Hannah Daly, who's Professor in Sustainable Energy and Energy Systems Modelling at the University College Cork. Hannah, I want to go back to the exports issue now because it is a big part of everything we hear when we're talking about renewable energy in whatever form. And of course, the good thing about renewable energy is it's it's normally used at source. But when it comes to hydrogen, um, what, what, like how how does that factor into exporting? I know there's a lot of talk of of Germany trying to court Ireland in partnerships. Just to, can you elaborate on, on what that means? Yeah, it's a it's a very compelling idea that you know Germany has a lot of very energy intensive industry, you know, making cars, making steel, making ammonia, fertilizer and so on. Um, and it might not have enough uh, land area or sea area to generate its own renewable uh, electricity to make its own green hydrogen. Um, that heavy industry, we don't yet know what the kind of decarbonization solution of that would be. We call it the so-called hard to abate sector. You know, we don't we don't have immediate solutions there. So the idea is that. Um, Sorry, can uh, you just expand on that hard to abate uh, for, yeah. for, for our listeners just to explain exactly what that means? 
Sure. Sorry, I'm, I'm using I'm using a lot it's of no technical problem. jargon here. <laughs> so essentially, you know, of, of all the energy system, we need to we need to abate emissions. So we need to remove greenhouse gas emissions. And there is low hanging fruit. Um, we you know, that that is that is ways that we use fossil fuels that we know what the solution is. So we're going to re- replace regular cars with electric cars, as well as, you know, walking and cycling and all that. We're going to replace, um, we're going to decarbonize our power grid with wind and solar mainly, um, and uh, and buildings with heat pumps and district heating and 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 insulation. So those are sort of we we know not not that it's easy to abate emissions from those sectors. It will take a lot of investment and work. But there are these sectors that like aviation, shipping, and heavy industry mm. where those solutions are not immediately apparent. Yeah. So you know we don't have easy ways to electrify them or or Im- improve the efficiency. And hydrogen is often sort of thought of as the, as the way to decarbonize those sectors. And so if you have a country like Germany, which has a lot of heavy industry, it has a huge energy intensive industry, it needs lots of bulk energy and it imports loads of, let's say, fossil gas, um, you know, both previously from Russia, and that's what caused a, a huge amount of geopolitical issues and economic issues with, with, the, with the war in Ukraine and the spike of natural gas. And it needs to replace that um, with a zero carbon energy source. And the idea is it's going around to all these countries like Ireland, which have larger renewable resource and, um, and looking to sign agreements to, to import hydrogen, um, from countries like Ireland. Mm. But I suppose my concern is that, you know, they're signing agreements with Ireland, with Spain, with Norway, with countries, um, that have, um, that are more advanced in their developing hydrogen, more advanced in their decarbonization journey. Um, and increasingly, it's actually looking likely that uh, it might be cheaper for Germany to just generate that hydrogen uh, domestically because mm. the cost of renewables is coming down all the time and, and uh, that's not slowing down. Yeah, it's fascinating when you start looking into the possibilities for this in, in the in the area of transport, I think in particular. You mentioned there that um, uh, this is a, a, a sector that can, can rely heavily on, on hydrogen. I think when I've looked at this in the past, there's been a requirement beyond what the industry can do for freight or rail that there has to be quite a bit of investment from the state in infrastructure to develop and push that along. Is that is that right? Is my understanding of that right? And do you see a possibility where Ireland could invest heavily in infrastructure and, and promote more hydrogen transport? I don't really because um, I think that as I said for for most like let's say road transport applications, electricity has really won the technology yeah. race there. And we're we're rolling out the EV charging network. Um the the vehicles are on the road. You know, my post uh, my postman comes in an electric van and a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, light goods vans are, are are fully electric. I'm I do think that we will see a handful of um of hydrogen fueling um stations mm. um in, in all the cities by twenty thirty. I think that's a requirement from the EU. And we will see maybe maybe we'll see some heavy trucks relying on hydrogen, um, particularly those that come from the continent where where the distances are longer. But we already have heavy trucks with um, several hundred kilometers of range actually on the market. 
And it's not clear yet whether, you know, hydrogen or fuel cell vehicles will will actually um, be in place. So I, I'm not sure if, if we do have to go investing in a parallel infrastructure for the hydrogen fuel when we know that we already have to invest in EV charging infrastructure. Okay. All right. Just very finally and very briefly, because time is upon us now, I'm afraid, Hannah, I just want to get your views on the French ambassador's suggestion that we as a country should be considering nuclear energy again. Yeah, I, I'm. 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 I'm afraid that I think nuclear energy is quite a distraction at the moment for for Ireland. I mean, it's certainly conventional. Um, these these very large plants, like they would have in France, are not a viable solution for for Ireland. It would be like building high speed rail between. Cork and Donegal, you know, it's it's just too large uh, and bulky. Uh, we we need something to replace gas in our power system, and and just that, that large nuclear is is just the wrong technology for that. Now, I believe the French ambassador was was talking about the potential for these more small modular uh, nuclear reactors, and they may well play a, va- um, a valuable role in energy systems, but they're not yet available commercially. Um, so we've no idea what the cost will be, whether they'll be compatible with a that runs largely on on wind and solar. So I think we we kind of need to maybe not put any hope in, in temporary in expectations yeah. for now. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, Hannah, listen, you've been a big help to try and explain to me as well as our listeners exactly what the role of hydrogen might be in the future. So thank you very much for your time and your expertise. That was Hannah Daly, Professor in Sustainable Energy and Energy Systems Modelling at University College Cork. Hannah, thank you very much. Thank you. Join us after this short break. We're going to look at the row that has erupted in government with rail versus road. Stay tuned. That's coming up after this short break. Now, recently, a war of words erupted between the Green Party and its two coalition partners over plans for a major expansion of the public transport system. And the impact that this might have on future roads projects was always a huge issue politically. So we wanted to look at at initiatives like this and what is the most effective way of using alternative models and modes of transport. And when it gets mixed up in the political system, it can become very difficult. I'm joined now by Edgar Morganrath, who's Professor of Economics at Dublin City University Business School. Edgar, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Hello. Now, Edgar, I just want to start with um, talking about the All-Ireland Rail Review, um, essentially aimed by Eamon Ryan at setting out some very early plans to transform the current rail system. And I just wondered what were your initial thoughts on this plan and and, and how you think it, it would fit into an Irish model as complex and as slow as it sometimes can be? Okay, so it's firstly, it's very, very ambitious, um, and I guess that's probably not a bad thing in 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 so far as we actually have a very big issue to tackle. Transport emissions are a really major problem for us. There, they're not going down, and and we need to, and we really do need to do something about that. Uh, and, and 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 doing something is not optional. Uh, this is going to have to be done. We can kick that can down the road, which is what we've been doing, or we need to get on with it. And when it comes to rail, of course, you need to start uh, early because it takes a long time to deliver. So it's very ambitious. Uh, there, there are a couple of specific things which I, I was a bit surprised by uh, in that, for example, uh, in Northern Ireland is part of the review. And of course, uh, whatever infrastructure is being built in Northern Ireland is, is ultimately down to the uh, Northern Assembly. Uh, and, and so actually including this, um, one would 
have to find some kind of agreement uh, uh, with Northern Ireland. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is important in the sense that it, it integrates the whole system and there, there are aspects that go across the border, uh, particularly into County Donegal, but you also see uh, in the in the uh, proposal uh, new routes into Cavan and, and changes uh, to alignments and new routes um, electrification, uh, the Belfast line, and so on. So there, there are quite a lot of aspects that, that pertain to Northern Ireland that will probably be quite complex to agree. Mm-hmm. So the, the, you know, that, that, that's the second point on top of the ambition. And then there were a few things that uh, I, I was missing a little bit. Uh, so the big ambition on developing more rail and more, more services, which I think is a, is a really, really good thing. Uh, we know that people don't travel that far to uh, railways. Um, so having more uh, new railways uh, will capture a larger part of, of the population or give, give them that opportunity to, to use rail. And, and more services, more higher frequency and, and better speed uh, are also really, really big uh, uh, driver of rail mode share. But that all has to be accommodated in the stations we have. And there are actually currently already uh, problems, in, particularly in Connolly Station, in accommodating um, more trains. Mm. And so where are they going to go? And that part was not properly dealt with, in, in my view. And there are some constraints there. And, and again, there's sort of uh, vague references to integrating with the new metro uh, that's also something we've been talking about for a decade at this stage, and that hasn't happened. Mm. Um, so there is a danger there that we end up with bits and pieces that don't properly integrate, and that's something we've uh, a long history of. Uh, if you think about the the, the Lewis, for example, mm. uh, you know it, it took it took some time before we actually managed to connect things, um, and that reduces the benefits, uh, yeah. and 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 also reduces then the potential uh, uh, use for people uh, and, and making them, sh- you know, the, the, the potential for them to change from their car into the train. Um, let's just start at the very beginning there where you talk about the ambition of the plan because it is a 36 billion euro plan and Eamon Ryan himself has said it would take at least three decades to implement a plan of this nature. I don't know if you saw an article that Cliff Taylor wrote about recently where he talked about how long infrastructural projects Mm. take in this country even compared to other ones. So I suppose what I'm asking you here now because I'm quite interested in why this is put into the political mix if you like at this particular juncture. Like when you look at a plan like this, is this aspirational or is it a dream? Um, you know, is there is it a political offering? Is it a political piece of bargaining? When you look at a plan and you talk about integration there, is this something that is realistic for Ireland? So the, the, the whole issue of, of time delays and in fact cost overruns isn't, isn't new and it's something that I've done research on over the years and, and made suggestions as to how we uh, eliminate those. Not not that much has happened in that space. Um, the, the the big thing with these kind of infrastructure plans is is that they typically range well beyond the life of mm. whatever current government is there, uh, and 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 they have to. Um, but that is, you know, they, 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 they are because it takes so long uh, to to even go through the planning process. 
uh, will will get you well beyond uh, uh, the life of this current government. So the plans always inevitably have to be uh, quite long term. Mm. Uh, that's an advantage because that that's what you need to do. You need to plan over a longer period. It's a disadvantage in that the next government might have different priorities, and of course you don't also need to deliver. Uh, you know, if you if there's if this is a three decade thing, well, the last bit gets delivered in thirty years time. Uh, uh, pretty much all of the uh, um, the cabinet members will be retired at that stage, I would imagine. Uh, so they're not going to be the ones delivering it or not delivering it. Mm. Uh, so it's it's very convenient sometimes to to make relatively ambitious uh, plans, which you don't actually yourself ever have to deliver on. Yeah. And it it, bring, uh, it it kind of brings me to a point, you know, that I've seen creeping into to politics, not just here, it's happening all around the world, but it's this short termism of the political cycle and even of political parties. Just look at the spending side of this. This project is, if if it were implemented, they say at a minimum a billion extra on top of everything that has been committed in national development plans and spatial strategy every year. But it's put out there, you get a lovely headline and some statistics about 700,000 more people would live within 5k of a railway mm. station. But actually, um, where is the analysis and the proper consideration and pushback on actually, is this re- is this realistic at all? Because in my view, maybe parts of it are, but it, it, it is it's it, it just doesn't seem realistic when we're, we're stuck talking about projects that have been announced 20 years ago and still are not up and running. Yeah, that, that's that's always going to be the problem. I think that there are other issues here in that that uh, we've got an ex- existing plans to, to build roads uh, uh, in some of the alignments that are now chosen for railway. But, you know, if we're going to build the road and then uh, build the railway <laughs> to try and empty the road, uh, are we wasting our money? I, I, I think there's a, there's a policy consistency issue here. And we've seen this previously. Uh, you know, we've we've had plans to to build uh, a rail connection to Navan, um, and uh, you know we we only got as far as Clonmel, uh, uh, but built a motorway instead. Or, or and and now we're we're saying, well, we want to have this uh, this rail connection so that we have less people on the motorway that we've just built. You should only do one or the other, and and that's I think where the political rows are going to be had. And and I guess the road development is quicker than the rail development, mm. uh, and and so you know that, that I think that there's going to be very it's going to be very interesting watching how much of this plan. Uh, um, will actually survive and get get built. Absolutely, yeah. You remind me of that. Uh, the quintessential Irish thing of a roundabout with a traffic light and a zebra crossing at it. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Edgar Morganrath, Professor of Economics at Dublin City University Business School. Edgar, just let's turn to the roads and another thing that has been discussed recently or kind of put out into the ether there was this suggestion about a congestion charge. And you may recall a number of months ago there was proposals going to Cabinet which were withdrawn about how to take cars out of the city which was quickly killed before it ever has started but on the congestion charge issue now what's the principle behind a congestion charge what is it designed to do is it economic is it environmental talk us through the, the thought process on that so so it's economic and environmental um, and and uh, 
in economics, we have a sort of a, a basic principle about uh, how we deal with with congestion or as, as an externality, as something that is imposed on other people. An extra car slows down the, the, the whole traffic. Um, and, and that is to, to what we call internalizing uh, this externality. So uh, the way we typically do this is to charge the extra cost that is imposed on others uh, so that you face the real total cost uh, that your activity uh, uh, causes, hmm. and so so the economics and the environmental side here are completely aligned, um, as they often are. Actually, um, so that there's there's good rationale for having a congestion tax. A congestion congestion is something bad, and we should try and reduce it. And it has a cost, and so by charging that cost, we can we can try and reduce this. So it's it's quite an old principle. It's it's been around for a long time, and and of course congestion charging has been around uh, uh, for a long time twenty twenty years in London and and longer in some other cities. Mm. And it does work. Uh, that's the other thing. Uh, it does work. Um, there are though some issues with it. Uh, um, I might I might be able to afford to still drive into Dublin. Um, uh, other people who might actually need to get into Dublin by car more. More, I mean, have a greater need to go in, but don't have the money. They are going to actually be faced with that 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 change in behaviour, where as it, maybe it should be me that shouldn't be going in uh, by by car. Uh, and then, of course, we always hear, well, we should have the public transport first, and then we can think about a congestion charge. I would argue that we actually do have public transport. I certainly uh, uh, very regularly uh, take public transport to get around Dublin. And for a lot of journeys, that is already there, not for every journey. Mm. Um, so, you know, we, we do have alternatives uh, to a degree. Uh, we need to increase that degree, um, absolutely. Uh, but, but for some people, for some journeys, um, the congestion charge may actually be a problem. And, and, we may end up having to exempt some people, for example, uh, if you think of disabled people who may find it difficult to use public transport to get uh, into the city. And then there's one other big issue that we never really talk about, and that is we've allowed, the planning system has allowed all this out-of-town shopping, uh, uh, mostly with free car parking. Mm. And we're already having to pay for parking in the city centre, and now we're going to have to pay uh, a congestion charge, well, uh, that's going to have a big impact on what actually goes on in the city centre relative to these out-of-town shopping areas. Mm. And and I think that's where we're also going to need to think about, uh, you know, uh, can, we, can, can, can we disadvantage the city centre so much and then expect that it provides all sorts of services and so on. I, I would imagine that that's not going to happen. Uh, you'll end up emptying out the city centre. And what what would our city centres look like? And 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 the workers' issue, as you have mentioned, there is a, is a real one for some people who need to get in and work, who need to get out from work. You also have the businesses constant complaint that after COVID, the city is kind of hollowed out in that sense. So politically, this presumably is a very very difficult thing to try and introduce. Um, what has made it successful in places like London and Singapore? What have they got and what can they do that we never seem to be able to manage here? Uh, I mean, L- London, 
I, I guess they they had the big advantage in Singapore to that their their public transport system was even more developed than ours, and having an underground uh, and an extensive underground network uh, helped. Um, the other thing is, I think political will uh, uh, sometimes you know you're going to have to deal with with, with not everyone being happy and, mm. and you, you you very often cannot make everyone happy and what we typically do in Ireland is when there's one group that can't be happy well then we just don't do anything and we just leave everything as it is and as I said earlier as I said earlier not doing anything isn't really an option mm. uh, we're going to have to reduce emissions from transport uh, so how do we do that? How do we actually do that? And it's n- unlikely to be possible to do this without some stick. Uh, you know, it won't only be possible to do it with, with a carrot alone. Yeah, absolutely. It's not going to be easy. I think as well as all of that, the lack of powerful local governments, you know, in place in cities and, and a strong Lord Mayor to, to push something like this along is, is something else that they have that we don't have. I'm sure it's an issue that we'll come back to on another day. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Edgar Morganrath, Professor of Economics at Dublin City University. Edgar, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk. Join us after the break when we be looking at a dangerous to democracy survey. It's a survey of American adults which revealed some very interesting findings about the use of political violence in US politics. Stay tuned. That's coming up after this short break. Now, in the wake of yet another indictment of Donald Trump this week, there's been much talk that the upcoming US presidential race is just ripe for political violence. We see in the US that there are election officials quitting um, at an alarming rate and an increasingly divisive discourse again in America over politics. There is some new research out that's been revealed, which sadly only furthers the cause for concern in that regard. Joining me now is Kira Lerner, who's democracy editor for The Guardian newspaper in the US and she's based in Washington. Kira, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thank you for having me. Kira, what a time to be democracy editor in Washington. I'm <laughs> sure you're very busy at the moment. Um, yes. we're, at, we're of course now on, you know, case number three of four in the Donald Trump uh, legal saga. Um, how do you see this particular one in um in the context of the challenges that he's facing. Do you think this week is a game changer? Certainly seems to me to be the more serious of the three so far. Yes, exactly. I think this third indictment is perhaps the most consequential and really alarming when it comes to the stakes for U.S. democracy. Um, This is the first indictment that really targets uh, former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election um, and really gets at the events that unfolded on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Um, The other indictments, while troublesome for a former president and for someone who is currently the leading contender for uh, the GOP nomination for president next year, um, while they're both alarming, they don't get at this 
large ranging scheme that Trump conducted with so many co-conspirators to try and overturn the results of the American election in 2020. So this one really feels the most consequential um, and it is really continues to divide the country in the way that the other indictments have as well. Mm. And up until now, I suppose, when we've been looking at the court cases and looking what Donald Trump is doing in terms of his fundraising around them, it certainly hasn't harmed him. But I suspect he now has to spend an awful lot of money um, and an awful lot of that money he raises actually fighting these cases. Yes, that's definitely true. Um, I think he also is able to fundraise mm. off of some of these indictments, which is uh, worrisome as well. Um, and I think what um, this uh, research out of the University of Chicago that I wrote about recently is showing um, is that some of these indictments are just leading to further political polarization in the U.S. Mm. Um, and while the research um, has, the survey has not been conducted since the most recent indictment, after the first two indictments, we saw that there was an increase in radical right-wing support for Donald Trump in this country um, and whether or not that leads to support for uh, his 2024 presidential uh, ambitions or monetary support for his campaign, uh, we'll have to see. Mm. But I don't think that the indictment is bringing him down in the way that some Americans would hope it uh, they are. They mm. would. Okay. No. And and really, that's what we wanted to talk to you about today, rather than the cases. Was the research because it is a fascinating insight into uh, the way that things are moving, if you like. So let's just go back to look at the actual research itself and just explain to us who's conducted this research and why and when the research started. So the University of Chicago's Project on Security and Threats, um, it's this group called CPOST, has been conducting what they call their Dangers to Democracy surveys since shortly after the January 6th insurrection um, on the U.S. Capitol. And the idea behind these surveys is to gauge support for political violence in the United States. Uh, because obviously we had this one mass incident of, of violence uh, in our capital. Um, but we want to know, the, the University of Chicago wants to track how likely similar events are to occur and what is driving um, a desire for violence in the United States. So yeah. they've been conducting these surveys every three months since January 6th. And I think what's al alarming for um in this most recent survey, which uh, The Guardian published in collaboration with the University of Chicago, is that this is the first time we saw uh, this last month was the first time since April 2022 when there was an increase in radical right-wing support for Donald Trump. Mm. And why do you think that that increase is happening now? Well, the authors of the survey are attributing it to the most recent uh, indictments, the first two indictments, because the survey came out before the most recent federal indictment. Um, so there's this feeling that uh, a lot of Americans believe that these prosecutions of Donald Trump are intended to hurt his chances in his next bid for the presidency. Um, and so really, these indictments are just furthering political polarization. Mm. Uh, right now, there's 18 million Americans, uh, the survey found, which is about 7% of American adults 
that believe that force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the White House. Um, And the vast majority of those people believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. Yes, well, it's important to point out that we're talking about a minority of American people and that most of these figures are small in a relative sense. But I guess what is important here is that it is an increasing volume of people that we're talking about in these cases that we uh, might logically think would harm him um, and hurt his cause are actually um, what, you know, increasing the amount of people who think that violence is appropriate to further a political cause. Is that the concern? Exactly. It's definitely a minority of Americans, but it is a very vocal minority uh, that are willing to act on their beliefs, as we saw on January 6th. But I do think it's important to know that just because people harbor beliefs um, that violence can be justified does not mean that they're necessarily going to act on that belief. And so what what turns a kind of radical thought into writing? Would Is it like, you know, a, a tinderbox, if you like, which if Donald Trump were to tap into this now or do something to provoke those people, there's a growing number of people who might be open to that type of behaviour? Exactly. The authors of the study described this uh, support for political violence as the kindling, and then it would take some kind of spark or match to set them off. So when Donald Trump spoke at the um, ellipse outside the Capitol on January 6th, for example, that was a spark that then drove all of those people who were rioting and protesting outside the Capitol to actually commit acts of political violence. If you're just tuning in, you're listening yeah. to News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm speaking to Kira Lerner, who's democracy editor for The Guardian. US and she's based in Washington. We're talking about a new survey that has come out in relation to radicalization in relation to American politics. Um I just want to go back to that issue, Kira, if I can, about um the research and what it showed about the split within the Democrats and the Republicans, if you like. Can we see any figures that show what each of those parties or how that manifest itself or or is it just within the Republicans or is there an element of Democrats rising to support um, more radical intervention in politics? There was a difference. I think the major difference is that we've seen that Republicans are more willing to act on their uh, desire for political violence, um, as we saw uh, on January 6th. But there was support um, on the left for the use of political violence to coerce members of Congress to do the right thing. That grew from 9% in January to 17% uh, in the month of June. So that is the biggest increase in that uh, support on the left that we have seen since after the January 6th insurrection. Mm. Um, And some of that support on the left is support for violence to restore the federal right to an abortion. Okay, so that's interesting. You're seeing increases in the Democrat side uh, as well as what we might expect from from the right. Is there um, are there figures there that you could give us about how much it's rising on the Democratic side as well? Yeah, so the survey found an increase in the support for the use of force to coerce members of Congress to do the right thing. That grew from 9% in January to 17% at the end of June. And that 17% is uh, roughly 44 million American adults. Wow, that's quite large uh, in terms of an increase uh, and very worrying. But was there anything in this research that showed what uh, American people think about the type of dangerous conspiracy theories that we've heard about in the past and you referenced early on in relation to to Donald Trump? Yeah, this survey has been uh, asking Americans about their belief in uh, f- 
in conspiracy theories uh, since the January 6th insurrection. Um, and currently 12% of Americans believe that the government is run by Satan worshiping pedophiles. Uh, so that's a major tenet of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, so, and that is up from just over 10% in 2021. So we do see a slight increase in the number of people that uh, believe this far right wing conspiracy theory. Okay. Well, just to finish out then um, on this, Kira, more indictments of Trump still pending, um, both from federal government and we're waiting for the one in Georgia to come. But even now, when we're looking at these figures, we're not really in the business end of the campaigning yet. Would you be concerned that this is only the start of that radicalisation on both the left and the right when it comes to the use of, of violence in the future when we get into the campaign real and proper? I think that's exactly the concern leading into the 2024 election. Uh, campaigning is going to ramp up uh, quickly and, and next year is going to be filled with political events and debates and, and Trump rallies. Um, and there, like you mentioned, there are likely to be more indictments coming soon. And so I think uh, the concerns that we see both with this survey and just more generally are that there will be an increase in American support for violence and that there may be a small number of people who uh, feel like they are called on to act on that desire for violence. We look for all the talk of what's happening in the course. I think it is really important to look at the more extreme elements and worrying that there's a growing number of people who are moving to those edges. Um, for now, though, we're going to have to leave it there. Kira, thank you very much for joining us today with those fascinating insights. That's Kira Lerner, who's Democracy Editor for The Guardian US. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to the producer of Taking Stock, Simon Keane, with Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva on sound. Um, my thanks as always to all of today's guests. And if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. Next week, Cliff Taylor will be telling us exactly why it takes so long to get anything built here in Ireland. We'll be looking at some of the projects that seem to cost an arm and a leg and take a lifetime to finish. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk.